you probably have that one teacher that you really liked. Um, and so that sort of, uh, that one teacher who like got you and that teacher, uh, is that for Christopher or Siobhan is that teacher, is that teacher for Christopher. everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are so glad to welcome you back to the show, everybody. Another week, another great script. Yes, excited to get to jump into the conversation. It is just like, just every once in a while in this little intro part, it is just kind of hits you that like, hey, it's great. We get to talk about plays. Um, and, Dude, and it's yeah. <laughs> every week, man. It's like, yeah. oh, this is now, we get to spend an hour talking about this play. It's just, it's a sort of a unique situation, right? I mean, it's like, we sort of treat it as if we were just like grabbing a beer to talk about a play we had seen or read. And I yep. think there's a lot of people that wish for that kind of regularity in being able to talk about plays in their life or books or, or, or whatever. And so hopefully this podcast offers just that brief hour to uh, engage as, as a listener to a conversation about a script. And then as we always encourage folks, and folks do, do. They reach out to us after the show by email, by social media. Um, we're able to kind of have a continued conversation about our interpretation of the script. Oftentimes it's just an interpretation about a history that we didn't know about a particular character or role. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great little community and it's a unique little community, I think. It is. It is. It's it's a joy to get to be a part of, a joy to get to talk about these plays. And this week is no exception. We're going to be talking about a play that has quite the title, a title that you've certainly heard. Uh, we're talking about The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Simon Stevens. Yes, this play has swept the the Western world. Uh, it, it is a, a play out of the UK, but it made its way over to the United States, had a fantastic Broadway run, had a fantastic touring Broadway run. All that to say that when I worked at the Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville, which was a touring Broadway house that I worked at for several years, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime came through. I was able to observe the the backstage parts of that show as well as see it in the audience and it is quite the experience that that particular production of it it'll be interesting because I, I have some insights into how they did it and how it's it's in some cases quite different from what's described in the play script of curious incident of the dog in the nighttime uh in in ways that i wouldn't have known before i picked up the play script uh that the production really was doing some very imaginative interpretive things from this text yeah, the play script leaves a lot of room out there for stuff to be imagined, and part of that is uh, uh, who who directed it for the first time, um, and I'm excited to kind of get into that in the context of, of it too, but part of it is just like the sort of freedom of of different houses uh, making big choices, and I'll be interested to hear how your experience of those big choices was, because um, there's, there's plenty of room in, in the play for those sorts of things. 
Boy, yeah. And this play, uh, as Jackson will tell you, I'm sure too, is adapted from a book. Uh, and I have kind of a particular interest. It doesn't come up a lot in this podcast because we just don't do a lot of this type of play typically. But I have a kind of particular interest in novel adaptions to the stage uh, and, and the techniques by which stories, which were once in a different genre, are now on in the stage genre. And I'm especially interested when they're not musicals. I think as a lot of people know, know, musicals are very, very typically adapted from another source. Uh, It's very, it's not totally out of bounds, of course, you see it, you know, somewhat frequently, but it's very, very common. In in fact, I would guess that the majority of musicals which get a real life are are adapted from other material. And and part of that's just because of how expensive and time-consuming and hard it is to mount a musical, to workshop a musical, to do all of that, that you want to kind of rely on a story uh, that is reliable in and some well sense. known and well known. So you see a lot of musicals are adapted from other material and that's great. I mean, I'm all about that. I'm all for that. But I have a real interest in the way that plays that are not musicals adapt prose because you, you, you get you sort of take away from yourself one of the tools of adaption, which is that you can have characters sing their inner thoughts like they described their inner thoughts in a book or something like that. Uh, and now you have to find a different way to communicate the prose style, to communicate the world building that an author has created. I- I'm fascinated by it. I love to check out novel adaptions. And Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime is like one of the most famous novel adaptions in recent memory on the yeah. stage. No- Definitely, yeah, it's true. I think I think in some of the interviews that that I watched in preparation, there were uh, 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 Simon Stevens was talking about the novel as the best loved novel in Britain at the time of its writing, um, uh, which was which uh, you know it's a it's a weighty thing to step into and then write a play about. So I'm excited to kind of yeah get into how he went about pulling uh, the narrative out of prose and onto its feet. And this and this play has a very specific way that that was done, which is interesting, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The 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 way that Steve I and mean, Stevens' work in general, like I'm getting into all the context stuff. Stevens' work in general is in really is really cool. I've gotten to see a couple of, of his plays and yeah, excited excited to kind of address some of his craftsmanship. Absolutely. But we better take our take a breath before we dive too far into this conversation because we're we're clearly excited to talk about <laughs> Curious Incident here. Uh before we do that, we'll just ask everybody, as we always do, to please consider heading over to our Patreon page. You can find that at patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's all one word, no hyphens, just patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's the easiest way to find us is just to type it in like that. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. We are so grateful and surprised and amazed by the way that the listeners of this show have stepped up to support the running of the show over there. We are supported by the folks over on Patreon. They make what we do possible. We love to do this podcast. It it may have existed in some form without support, potentially, but it could not have happened the way that it has happened, have had the regularity and the dedication that we've been able to put into it without the folks who support us over there. If you've ever tried podcasting in any capacity, let alone we're on more than four years now of podcasting, you know it's expensive and it's time-consuming and uh, it's a lot harder to do than you think. And we just, (laughs) Jackson and I aren't 
aren't rich and neither of us also have an abundance of free time. And so this would just not be possible to do this weekly podcast of conversations about scripts if it weren't for the folks who are supporting us. So if that's not you yet, just think about it, please. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. There's various tiers. You join at a monthly level and the lowest monthly level, literally, it's just a dollar a month. That's not an under exaggeration. Like it is literally, you can join at a dollar a month, which is $12 a year. And that amount is hugely helpful to us as well. Everybody who joins on Patreon will get to access to the stuff that we got going on over there. We've got patron-only posts, including uh, sort of anticipatory posts about what's coming up on the season. In other words, our patrons know much farther in advance than the general community what scripts are coming up on the show. That's one of the major perks, but there are other ones you can check out over there. And of course, there's higher tiers if you can afford that too. Just something we'd like you to consider. Again, a dollar a month is the lowest level. That's a great help to us. Please consider it. And if you are one of of our supporters over there a huge thank you you make doing no script the podcast possible yes thank you all so much y'all rock we'll see you over on patreon.com slash no script podcast and now back to the script here we go we're gonna jump into some more conversation about the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime uh first of all just gonna introduce you briefly to simon stevens um Simon Stevens is a playwright, an English playwright with a surprisingly large lexicon of plays, a lot of original plays and a lot of uh, adaptions. Uh, he started, though, as a, a history major and a teacher for a long time before uh, moving on to becoming a full-time playwright. Um, you uh, might have seen his play Birdland. I had the chance to see his play Birdland when I was over in London. It was a great play. Um, but this play, A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, is one of his very well-known plays because of its uh, kind of adaption from a very well-loved novel. Um, he also, though, has done other adaptations like Three Penny Opera, The Seagull. There's, he's, he's done multiple uh, kind of uh, re, uh, re-approaches to different scripts. His most recent play uh, premiered in 2021, The Morning Sun. Um, but a, a, a prolific playwright and, and one who enjoys working in adaptation, adaptations and working in partnerships. Um, he has a pretty long partnership with Andrew Scott, the actor. Um, he also has a pretty long partnership uh, and kind of friendship with Marianne Elliott, who was the director of A Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And that's a pretty important element of this context, because as we said in the beginning, the kind of writing of this play leaves a lot of room for how to imagine how this play happens. Um, and as I move into sort of specific context of the play itself, it's impossible to mention this play and its origins without mentioning uh, Mark Hayden, um, who or Haddon, who wrote the book um, that, that the play is based on. Um, he was, of course, an integral part of the writing process. He reached out to Simon Stevens to write the the adaptation of the the book to the to the stage. And then uh, Simon Stevens reached out to Marianne Elliott to see if she'd be interested in directing this production. And Marianne Elliott, you would, uh, if you if you don't know your, her name, you should. She also directed Warhorse, um, a very visionary, uh, very uh, conceptual director, um, uh, who also Simon Stevens uh, mentions as a very democratic director, someone who is willing to kind of work with the cast quite a bit. So. 
um, uh, all these people kind of team up around this play and uh, bring it to life. Um, the, the play uh, is uh, uh, debuted uh, Broadway production, or I'm sorry, not Broadway, um, the, uh, the, the West End or Royal National Theater production um, started at the Apollo Theater, or started at the National Theater and then transferred to the Apollo Theater in 2013. It was nominated for many Olivier Awards, I believe eight and won seven of them, which at the time was the most Olivier Awards, um, uh, uh, which, uh, or, or tied rather with Matilda the Musical. It has since been uh, uh, out, out, outdone by uh, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which is interesting. No, look, no, uh, <laughs> no. I, I don't mean to slight the Harry Potter plays at all in this. I guess I'm going to sort of, but I don't. I, that's not yeah, really the no intention of this comment. <laughs> this comment is just to say awards are great. Awards are fantastic. Number of awards are are amazing. That's it's awesome to do that as a production. It's it's celebratory of all the hard work. All that's amazing. The fact that the Harry Potter plays <laughs> now hold the most nominations and blah 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 and awards won and blah 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 does somewhat speak to awards not perhaps being the number one indicator of the quality of a piece of theater. Not to say that Harry Potter plays aren't hugely quality or anything like that, but just to say that if there were like the best play in history, you would think, oh, it has the most awards, but it's nope, it's Harry Potter. Right. So <laughs> just 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 saying that. Just saying, just saying. No shots fired here. Um, so we've got <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it was the winner, though, of, of many, many awards, tied for the most at the time with Matilda. Best new play, best director, best actor, best actress in supporting role, best sound design, best lighting design, best set design. Winner of multiple Tony Awards as well. I believe five different wins and six nominations at the Tony Awards once it transferred to Broadway. Uh, winner of a ton of Drama Desk Awards, etc., etc. The play, the play is very well lauded, and it had a number of productions. Uh, as I said, the Royal National Theater, then transferred to the Apollo Theater, and the rest West End, the Gielgud Theater, the Piccadilly Theater, all the way through uh, its its first production in 2012, all the way to 2018. It then goes all over the world. Uh, it uh, has production in Mexico, Broadway, another uh, UK national tour, and US national tour. It, it premieres in Seoul in 2015, Spain in 20. 18 and South Africa in 2018 as well. So a very rich, broad life to this play. The other piece of the context that uh, uh, that is that is worth bringing up kind of right at the beginning is this play is kind of centered around a character who, um, uh, when the book was written, uh, would have been uh, termed on on uh, as has as having Aspergers. That has since been a term that is not used anymore, um, and would we would say now probably on the autism spectrum. Um, However, the author, Mark Hayden, has said somewhat frequently, and Simon Stevens has also said somewhat frequently, that this is not necessarily a book or a play about autism, but a play about difference, and a play about how someone with a different uh, reception to the world experiences the world. Uh, that being said, uh, the, the, the play has become a sort of rallying moment for uh, actors and theater actors with autism, not only because of the content of the play, but also because uh, Mike Rowe is the first openly autistic actor to play the role of Christopher and he um, kind of wrote a, a book about that experience and about how um, being in this play affected him as an actor with autism and how it uh, offered a chance to uh, be representative for him and open up uh, a way for, for actors with autism to be able to interact with the theater community in a new way. So it's a really important play in that conversation as well. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Hayden who wrote the original play is, is the first one to say I was not an expert on this 
this when I wrote it and I've, I've been invited to try to like give talks on this and I'm not qualified to do that, but I'm really grateful that people have found themselves in this play in that way. Um, so, so it's an important play for that. It's an important part of that conversation, especially for actors on the autism spectrum who are a part of, uh, a part of theater and a part of bringing their, their stories into the public light. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. And that's so important in terms of why this play has had such a life is the kind of story it tells and the unique lens that it offers. And to the the group of folks out there who are, who are oftentimes the ones who are running the theater industry, who maintain this idea that they're that the one perspective of the the sort of uh, a, a white neurotypical heterosexual uh, a privileged wealthy viewpoint is the viewpoint for theater, and that's what's going to sell. And so any of these sort of viewpoints that fall outside of that quote unquote mainstream don't belong on the stage or, or are, are inevitably going to fail because they're not wide reaching or, or whatever. Uh, they, they, it's so clear that they get proven wrong time and time and time again. Yep. When you bring a unique point of view, a unique story, a unique lens, that specificity kind of opens the human heart. I'm just sort of waxing about my own beliefs at this point, but I do think that, that there, that, that, sort of very standard nothing is going to be that different we're going to offer this it's just it's so often proven wrong i think and curious incident yeah. the dog in time is in a nighttime is another example of that being proven wrong uh and that's something to be celebrated and hopefully we'll see more and more and more of that every year i think we do see more and more of that every year obviously there's a lot of work to go that's why articles like we see you white american theater still come out and why the industry still has so much to change but i i do think it is changing uh however uh, painfully slowly that may be occurring <laughs> right right yeah yeah steven says in, in one of the interviews with him i just he, he, he claims how human theater is and how it's the most human of the art forms we have out there and the sort of accessibility of theater to um, and hospitality that it that it can offer even though though it's a slow work of being sure that it does offer that um, uh, uh, is 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 a really compelling part of why why to keep doing theater because it opens the door to being able to tell people's stories really well yeah Absolutely. Okay, so if you don't know already, here's a brief overview of the plot of Curious Incident. It's sort of a plot-heavy show, despite the fact that it's really, I think, more of an experiential piece of theater uh, than it really is a, a a plot story, a kind of a character journey standard arc, I think. But but there is a plot, and here it is. Christopher Boone is a uh, teenager in uh, the UK. And he lives with his father because at the beginning of the play, uh, he understands that his mother has died two years ago. This is just the given circumstances. The play begins, and as Jackson said, Christopher is on the autism spectrum. Uh, and at the top of the play, the uh, neighbor's dog, Wellington, is discovered murdered. Murdered with a pitchfork. It's like one of the kind of defining images of the play. Is the dog dead with a pitchfork stuck into it? It's how the play opens. Uh, Christopher and 
and the neighbor woman are there together. She has discovered her dog dead. Christopher standing over the dog uh, and, and naturally assumes that he murdered the dog. Uh, and so the police are called. Christopher does not like to be touched. That becomes a major point throughout the course of the show. So when a police officer tries to uh, touch him for one reason or another, uh, Christopher sort of reacts in a panic and ends up striking the officer and so is thus arrested. Excuse me. <coughs> I think last week we talked about it being a little early for me yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Christopher is arrested. He is then uh, his father comes to get him. And uh, so uh, what we learn then across the course of the next several scenes is that Christopher quite likes the dog. He likes animals, uh, dogs in particular. He also has a pet rat, Toby. And he has set out to discover uh, who murdered Wellington. And so from the beginning, this play is set up as a sort of murder mystery. I, Christopher, am going to discover who murdered Wellington. And as I'm doing this, I, Christopher, I guess, I'm doing this in the first person for whatever reason. (laughs) Now I am Christopher. (laughs) As Christopher, he is uh, investigating this this murder. He's also writing a book about his investigations. He's writing this sort of in collaboration with his teacher, Shaban, and um, this relationship, he Christopher goes to a school for children with certain, uh, you know, at the time of the book writing, we would have called them disabilities, but uh, certain neurodiversities is now how we would refer to it. Um, he goes to a sort of a special school for that. And so his teacher is uh, kind of specifically uh, understanding of his situation and you would assume is very highly trained in, in what she does and does it very well. And so she helps Christopher write a book. And this book is actually, I mean, not literally, but it, that's the premise for the book that is Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime is that it is the book Christopher has written. So that if you go read the book, which I did, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's like written as if Christopher were writing it. And then that book gets adapted into this play. So Shaban is helping him write this book about his investigation of Wellington. Here are the things he discovers across the course of his investigation. He discovers that uh, the neighbor, who is Mrs. Shears, her husband, Mr. Shears, left her many years ago. Uh, or I guess two years ago. And this makes the him the prime suspect for the murder of Wellington because, of course, he has some sort of negative feelings towards Mrs. Shears. And Christopher intuits that, you know, you would have to not like some... Unless you didn't like dogs, then you would probably have to not like the person who owned the dog to kill their dog. The only person he knows that has a problem with Mrs. Shears is Mr. Shears. So he begins asking questions about Mr. Shears. Across the course of this investigation, he discovers that his mother... Uh, had an affair with Mr. Shears. And actually, she has not passed away two years ago. She and Mr. Shears ran off together to London, and Christopher's father, Ed, has been pretending that she is dead for these number of years and has, in fact, been hiding in his closet a number of letters that Christopher's mother has been sending him. Yeah, it's kind of a stunning realization of of uh, how how is his father Ed is like kind of uh, keeping these letters hidden away. It's actually in a scene where where his father also steals the book from him for a moment. So he steals the book that he's writing and hides it in the same place as what turns out to be just a whole stack of letters from his mom that have never uh, been given to him. 
Yes. And so when Christopher discovers this, this sends him into sort of a spiraling um, uh, episode. And Ed, Christopher's father, comes home to discover Christopher with the letters and is very apologetic about having hid the fact that his mother is not dead for yeah. several years. Uh, and in the course of admitting this and apologizing and promising to be trustworthy in the future, and yada da, he also admits that he killed Wellington. Apparently, he and Mrs. Shears, after her husband and his wife ran off together, maybe there was some potential that they were going to get together themselves, uh, and that did not happen, and in anger and frustration, Ed killed Wellington. The Act 1 ends with Christopher now knowing who killed Wellington, so the murder mystery part of it is over, but... Uh, in the sort of perspective that he sees the world, believing that if his father killed Wellington, he is thus a murderer and violent and may potentially uh, hurt Christopher as well. Christopher now has the address where his mother has been living in London for two years, and at the end of Act 1 decides to go to London on his own, basically to run away, uh, and to find his mother. So Act 2, the first part of it, is a harrowing journey on the bus, on the train, um, and it, a lot of that section is sort of uh, the way that his, his particular unique brain sees the world and the way it is stimulated by and, and, and the kind of crazy, overpowering sensations of some of these journeys. He takes his pet rat and travels to London. He eventually does find his mother. The police are looking for him, of course, because he's run away and his father has told the police that he's run away. So they're, they're, he's at times hiding from the police uh, and various different kinds of adventures his rat almost gets lost onto the train and uh, or, or into the tracks of the train and he tries to rescue it quick before the train hits him so there's lots of sort of mini episodes within that journey to london he, he arrives to london and, and you know reconnects with his mother after two years mother is still dating mr shears who we now know is roger they live in a small apartment so there's now some back and forth about what's going to happen now the police find him so now ed knows that he's living with his mother in london ed comes to try to get him to move back there's some problems with their living situation in london not the least of which is that roger does not want this autistic son who's causing him problems and annoyances around eventually uh chris and his mother move back to where his father lives in basically a small town um and they don't move back in with the, his father though because christopher is still scared of his father they move into a small apartment by themselves um, and Christopher then has to have these sort of afternoon visits with his father to sort of rebuild that relationship because his mother is at work. Um, and at the end of the play, Christopher's father, in sort of a gesture of apology, uh, offers or brings on stage a puppy. I can talk about how that worked in the production that was at Walton Arts Center, too. Uh, sure. Brought on stage a puppy, and, and, and so that's how the play ends, is that Christopher is going to raise this dog with his father basically as a, a rekindling of their relationship. Meanwhile, underneath all of this, Christopher is trying to take a high-level math exam. An A-level is what they call it. That's a, a UK way of talking about math tests that doesn't ring a ton with me. All I understand is that it's a very high-level math test that he wants to take, and because he goes to the school of neurodiverse people, it's not typical for the school, so there's some kind of squabbles about whether he's going to get to do it, how he's going to get to do it. Now that he's run away to London, is he going to get to do it? He finally does get to take the exam and passes with flying colors, which sets him up to take the next series of exams sort of in the future. Um, and the play ends uh, after the curtain call with a sort of fantastic uh, experience 
experiential way where Christopher describes to the audience how he solved one of the problems on the math A-level exam. And you really get to see his passion and joy for math come out in this kind of final beautiful celebration at the end of the play. Yeah, so it's 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 uh, you're right in saying it's like a pretty plot heavy, like that you're you're actually going on quite a bit of a journey, um, and and kind of going going through them, but it's kind of blended in and mixed in with a lot of these kind of fairly significant monologues and really inventive ways of weaving those monologues together. I do want to take just a second, like I I wonder if our entry point into um, both the monologues and and also the sort of journey that we go on are those scenes that call for some pretty um, pretty imaginative uh, physicality, and that's not often what we uh, you know focus on in a in a in a in a podcast about reading scripts. We're often like dealing with textual criticism or character arc or plot or something like that. But if you've seen any pretty much any ads for this play or uh, had for the chance the, to see it for in the person. big famous production. I mean, yeah. lots of people have done it since then. So there are different kinds of productions, but for the famous one that toured all over um, and it was, you know, sort of set in that big sort of metallic, very, very minimalist box basically. Mm-hmm. But then there would be projections and movements and stuff all over the walls. Exactly. There's the, the play is full of this very like, uh, 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 creative is not quite the right word, but, um, uh, generative almost space around the actor of Christopher, where we kind of experience visually a lot of what goes on inside his head, um, as he interacts with the world. And, uh, and, and especially those scenes where like he journeys, uh, to London. Um, he has kind of like an, uh, an odyssey almost where he goes through these two big train stations and hides in a train um in luggage racks and things like that and uh get the, gets the constantly overstimulating experience of being in a train station without being able to filter any of it out um they're just like really visceral and interesting scenes to try to put on stage yeah it's interesting to talk about this play because it's a book adaption so it it's it's a strange thing because the story was of course already existed when the play went about, started to be created. So uh, as we talk about some of this stuff, we're really, I guess, commenting on the person who created the story for the book, not so much the play itself. This depends on, on what we end up talking about. But I, I love the way you <laughs> described the the journey to London as a sort of odyssey because for all the unique perspectives and the ways that this play interprets the world and offers insights into the characters, in some ways, this is kind of a standard story. I mean, you have a murder mystery. That's a, that's a standard format we're all used to. And then an odyssey story. I mean, how many stories are people literally going out on a journey, right? Bilbo Baggins going out on an adventure <laughs> and encountering danger along the way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely uh sort of that 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 uh it's 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 adjacent to a hero's journey, but it's also like uh uh um no, I think I think it probably just could be a hero's journey. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, I totally agree. Yeah, just just uh watching him try to navigate um, uh, decisions that he makes based on his safety and based on what he wants and based on uh, new information to try to uh, uh, find find his mother, for instance, and find a new way to be. And and I do think that that it, it, by leaning into, I would say there may be more than this, but I would say there are sort of three um, 
kind of standard story formats that this play book whatever uses to and it kind of grafts this unique perspective of Christopher's neurodiversity onto three kind of standard story formats a murder mystery we're very used to murder mysteries and the unique way that Christopher interprets clues thinks about the logical problem solving goes about solving this issue is one uh, the the hero's journey or the Odyssey or the the Bilbo Bilbo Baggins going on an adventure sort of story out into the world danger with a goal in mind um, we have that sort of world and then a unique perspective is grafted onto that. And then I'd like a, a family drama. I mean, the last part of the play, once he arrives at London, really becomes a, just a, a regular old family play to some degree. But with the the unique perspective of Christopher as our interpretive lens for that familiar story. And I think relying on those kind of familiar frameworks gives us uh, who are who do not have the same neurodiversity as Christopher and who are interested in that broader perspective gives us just a just a, a familiar enough world so that what we can focus on although I described it being plot heavy the plot is not I mean I guess it's sort of a twist that his dad murdered Wellington but it, it that I, that doesn't come as a result of like, that the climax of the play as a result of Christopher's hard snooping on this murder mystery, the, the things that happen sort of happen as part of the logic of the world. And what, and because we're familiar enough with the frameworks of the types of stories, I think we're able to focus instead on the interpretive lens for the stories that's provided by Christopher. Yeah, it is interesting. The first act sort of holds down the wing of this play that is an investigative, crimey sort of, sort of archetype. Um, and and there is uh, so there's definitely the 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 uh, turn that it's it's Ed who murders Wellington. There's also the significant surprise that his mom is alive. Um, that is completely um, uh, kind of uh, uh, left, or we, we just assume that that's given information at the start of the play, and by the end of Act 2, it comes to light that she is in fact alive still. Um, and and then, or I'm sorry, Act 1, at act the end one, of Act yeah. 1, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, so, but, but really then, after Act 1, it makes a turn into what you're talking about. Because Act 1 is is this sort of like, we're going on his like sleuthing. He's he's interviewing the neighborhood, and slowly more information is coming to light. And we suddenly learn that there was an affair between his mom and Mister Shears. Um, uh, but then the second act becomes, oh, this family is is going through some stuff, um, and it becomes that sort of family drama piece. And but only and, after the the Odyssey journey to London. Exactly. I don't want to miss that part. It's it's a it's a, when you when you see the play on stage. It is a huge part of the play for as weirdly small, like a time part of the plot is. I mean, you know, the journey to London takes, let's say, at max to a day or two days. I mean, it, that's way right. too long. It's not that long at all. So it's a very small amount of time, but it's a very large part of the experience of the play is the journey to London. 
And it's often a very visceral part of the staging as well. Again, uh, uh, in in our imaginative space, at least, but in in and in the kind of previous productions, there's a lot of interaction with brand new people. The cast is a cast of like, oh, I don't know. I'm just looking at the list real quick. It's maybe ten to twelve, maybe a little more than that. But then each of the or like eight of those roles or ten of those roles all are doubled and triple cast. Which um, that is very typical of novel adaptions, of course, because novels tend to contain a lot more characters than plays contain like you uh, like full built plays from the ground up because in a novel all you gotta do is write a name <laughs> right right <laughs> right in a play it's like i gotta cast somebody to play that character so typically <laughs> playwrights who are right they're a little more judicious with the number of characters than than in novels <laughs> so you often see in novel adaptions that a, a smaller ensemble will all double triple quadruple many times over cast as all the characters yeah. Yeah. The, the other the other sort of archetypal or familiar story and even I would say um, uh, at least at least companion, if not hero in her own right, is Siobhan, the teacher in this play. Um, she plays a pretty consistent role throughout the play of uh, coming alongside Christopher early in the play. She ends up taking on his voice quite frequently um, uh, because we slowly realize uh, throughout the course of the play that this is in fact a play within the play um, that she is uh, advised him to that, that I know you're writing this book. What if we made it a play and put it on at the end of the year? Um, and so she starts taking on or, 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 or rather, her taking on some of his lines from earlier begins to make sense in that context. Um, so, so she's along with him. She helps him work through a lot of stuff. It's, she's clear that she's very close to him. She also is the one who enables him to overcome the different, the, there's a, there's a, a piece of the play when he's in London where he has to not go or he's, he's, he worries that he's going to have his A or his A exams, A tests uh, canceled um, because he's no longer in his hometown. He's in London and his mom cancels them. But then they wind up moving back home in time to take them. But they've already been canceled. And it's Siobhan who does the groundwork to be sure that he's able to take that math test um, again. So she kind of uh, is this. Is this uh, certainly hero, not not hero in terms of uh, uh, structure of the play like protagonist, but a hero in Christopher's life. Um, so you have this this kind of, uh, again, the story of even if even if you even if uh, the, the common experience of having a hard time in school is true for you, you probably have that one teacher that you really liked. Um, and so that sort of uh, that one teacher who like got you and that teacher uh, is that for Christopher or Sh Siobhan is that teacher is that teacher for Christopher. And it is it is the use of the teacher character, which is kind of the primary way that Stevens dealt with the adaption of the book to the stage. So basically he reimagines the telling of the story as happening in kind of two, two worlds at the same time. One is Siobhan uh, experiencing the book and then kind of Re, uh, at times reading parts of that book or or acting parts of the narration of the book for the audience. So she becomes basically one of the narrators of the play alongside Christopher. And she and Christopher narrate, I think in, at, at times they're both narrating from the book. So like from the future where, the, where, where they are reading the book about the present tense action of what's actually happening in the play. And then... Um, 
then there's also times where Christopher is narrating from the present tense in the action and she's narrating from the future. So she, so it's one of the challenges of putting a novel on stage, right? At least this is true of a lot of novels. Not every novel is written in the past tense, but the vast majority are, at least in English. I don't know a lot about foreign language novels. Uh, in English, typically prose is written in the past tense. Not always, but often. Now, plays, by contrast, happen in the present tense. They're literally, the idea is that you create a world which is literally happening right now in front of you. And so, as, as, as small a thing as it seems, taking the past tense view from a novel and making it a present tense view for the stage is quite difficult. And, and playwrights of all stripes who do adaption work have different ways to handle it. Some of them pretend that their the narration, they sort of ignore the narration entirely, and they just tell the story from the present tense. And some of them, as we see in Curious Incident, of course there's a lot more options, but just to give you two, some of them, as in Curious Incident, take the narration as part of the storytelling. And they create a way to deal with it. In this case, they say Siobhan is reading this book sometime in the future. And that she and Christopher interacting about the book itself will be part of what tells the present tense story of Christopher's journey of, of discovering who killed Wellington, going to London, meeting his mother, yada, da, da, da. To the point that there's even some great little scenes where like active feedback is happening about the play. <laughs> um, there's, 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 there's the scene where uh, he's taking the test and he begins to explain a what, what I'm sure is not like, I, I don't know, it was complicated for me uh, to read um, a, a formula that he's trying to solve um, uh, about, about this triangle. And Siobhan kind of pipes in and says, that's not really the most interesting thing to put into a play. And, and he's like, it's really interesting to me. It's really cool. And she's like, well, sure. Well, maybe maybe you just like do that at the end and, and people people can see it at the end of it. And he's like, OK, fine. And then we go into kind of a time jump till he's done with the test. Um, but but that that's sort of like uh, sort of uh, fun, uh, abstracting or uh, external mindset um, uh, for Siobhan and Christopher's interaction with the play that's happening about the play that's happening uh, is is a really uh, yeah a really interesting way that that adaptation has taken place. It really like sets it and grounds it into something uh, active and happening uh, while still honoring the the original. Uh, intent of Christopher writing this book about his experience. And 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 Stevens is so smart in how they handle introducing the way this is going to work to the audience. So Siobhan, from the very beginning of the play, is providing some of the narration of the story as it goes along. And then there's a moment, it's it's after Christopher has had, had uh, has discovered the dead dog with his, his neighbor and his neighbor's called the police. He Christopher describes something about how the police officer who came had a leaf sticking to the bottom of his shoe. Uh, and, and, uh, Siobhan immediately says to, she says after she's narrated this thing that we suppose is from Christopher's book, she describes after 12 and a half minutes, policeman arrived, he had a big orange leaf stuffed to his shoe. Then she goes and says, this is good, Christopher. It's quite exciting. I like the details. They make it more realistic. And that's all of that little scene, right? But right away you, you get the sense, oh, so there's two things happening at once here. 
we have a story going on in front of us about Christopher and the dog and the police officer and a narrator, Siobhan, who we don't know yet, but who is helping tell that story for some reason. But she, as a character, we learn, also has a lens into the story somehow. And for some reason, she's commentating on the way the story is being told. And Mm. that little entrance then expands into so many different things across the course of the play. Leading up to later in the play, she will actually speak lines for Christopher uh, in in in-character scenes. So you imagine that she's pulling them from the book that she's reading in the future. This kind of past-future coming-together thing uh, I, I really think is an interesting way to handle the problem of adapting a novel. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the sort of uh, sort of way that that uh, uh, Christopher is able to interact with with Siobhan, uh is just like categorically different from the way that he interacts with almost everyone else. Um, there's 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 a scene where um, it, the living situation has become uh, difficult uh, in both his mom and his dad and his dad's house. Um, and there's this scene where where the the closeness of these characters, the level to which Christopher trusts trusts Siobhan is to uh, such an extent that he asks if he can just come and live with her, and she has to finally that that's finally where the boundary line is. She's like, no, that that's not gonna work. I'm not sure. I I can't be your mom. Um, uh, but and, but and that moment we think happens in the present tense of the story. Right. Like, so that's the other complicated part about Siobhan, right? Is that she's not only a future character reading the book and in the, I think it's a little contrived to write about adapting the book into a play in the play, but so it goes, I guess. (laughs) She's in the future helping Christopher write the book and adapt it into a play for the audience, whatever. That that part of it I'm not super fond of, but oh, cool, that's fun. So she's a that character, right? And she's a character in the story being told. And she has lines where she's like, Christopher, I did not say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you miss, you didn't interpret that the way I meant to say it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's she's uh, all yeah, also a character who is affecting the outcome of the story, and a character who is affecting the presentation of the story to to the broader community. And those things come together. I think, and it really shows the craft behind this play. This is a, a moment. Um, it, it, Christopher has moved into his mother and Roger's apartment, and it's going badly, and Christopher is in a lot of distress. And there's a moment where Siobhan steps in and has a conversation with Christopher about uh, the stars, uh, about uh, helping him to calm down and order his world a little bit. Um, basically, helping helping him get through this difficult thing that's go- that's going on in their life right now. And this is not Siobhan as a real character present in the moment. This is an imaginative version. This is the future version, perhaps, stepping in to affect the present tense moment of the story. You don't really know what it is or what's going on because she's not obviously there. He's in London with his mother. It's the middle of the night. She's a teacher back in his small town. I mean, she's not there as a physical person. So who is this Siobhan? What is her role? How is she interacting? It's a sort of blending of the future tense Siobhan able to comment on the action and the present tense Siobhan that is part of the action into this nice little moment where that both and role of hers pays off as she becomes both and literally in the moment. 
Yeah, yeah, and and it also speaks to uh, the the other piece that we kind of weave in and out of present and future and and all the different places with is Christopher, obviously, because um, they're with him for a long time of this play. He's actually, I don't think he's ever not on stage. Um, uh, I think he's the the actor uh, who plays him is is uh, quoted as saying like, yeah, I'm I'm going the whole time. I'm always calling the next scene. I'm always on stage in the next scene, and and never and never leave the stage. <laughs> and, and and truth be told the play script calls for that to happen for all the characters. Now there's maybe different moments where they take an exit as part of the story, but this is a kind of the kind of play where the cast remains on stage throughout the action. Now I have to say, now it's been a couple of years. I don't remember all the specific details. I am not sure that the big famous touring production of this show quite did that. It was very imaginative and the cast was on stage a lot and they played a lot of different roles and they changed costumes on stage and all that, all those kinds of tools. But I don't know that they quite lived into the the whole cast on stage the whole time ask that's in the play script it's a it's a it's a i mean it's a big ask basically <laughs> it'd be a hard one to pull off um without some sort of like neutral zone um where you know you're not supposed to give them attention <laughs> or something like that um but but also uh kind of speaks into uh, at least some some of christopher's uh kind of uh, a, a lack of filters to the area. Um, uh, so it might be that you're in an alone spot, but there's lots of other people around that he's still paying attention to. Um, uh, and, and the way that he interacts with those different characters as they quickly become uh, either uh, present characters or just passing characters um, is, is a really compelling reason to try to keep them on stage for the whole production. Yeah, and and it's a it's another one of those sort of conventions that you see a lot in novel adaptions is that because the the world of the novel is so much different than the world of the play and you can transfer between tons of locations and tons of characters much more easily than you can in a play you sort of lean into the imaginative world of of drama and of theater by highlighting for the audience the way in which they're going to have to deal with uh, this one play stage is going to be a huge big world where we transfer between locations and characters and such all the time, just in order to keep up with the demands of uh, the kind of world that a novel creates. Right. And, and it's, I mean, uh, the, trying to craft that sort of world, a very imaginative world for the reader of a novel and trying to put it on stage um, re- requires a lot of the production team um, to the point that like the, the kind of appendices scene um, where uh, where Christopher like does his equation um, uh, is is there's there's a call for a lot of technology. Some of it, uh, you know, is, is gracefully phrased as like, as long as you have the technology, this would be great. Um, but but some of his lines are specific. He names a number of pieces of theater gear, which include four projectors. Um, and, and, uh, and, and like, you know, lasers and things like that. So, so, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of, at least in its initial imagination, certainly there's ways to do it without all this tech, but in its, in its initial imagination, it's an ambitious, um, uh, technical feat to, to kind of portray some of the, the, the way that this, uh, imaginative, uh, experience of reading the book translates onto stage. And it's it's a great moment. I mean, it's just so celebratory and the passion that comes out as he does this math problem on stage. It's a great example of how 
in, in drama, it's like there's the thing that you're doing and then there's the thing that you're really doing, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in what he's doing is solving a math problem, which unless you're particularly interested in math is not that interesting. And even if you are, it's a math problem that you could already have the solution to because it's preordained. It's like he's not really solving a math problem. He's just remembering the lines right, <laughs> that somebody right. wrote about how to solve this math problem. <laughs> but then there's the thing that's really going on, which is a celebration of someone's passion. I mean, that's the thing that's really going on is you're seeing him do something he loves. And that's the thing that we can plug into and have that kind of open heart, awe, catharsis kind of reaction to. I think that's about all the time we have for this uh, show, uh, uh, this podcast about uh, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. There's so much more that we could drill uh, uh, drill towards uh, the individual character relationships, the sort of family dynamic of Ed and Judy and Christopher um, is a really heartbreaking and beautiful element of the play um, as you watch these people trying to navigate their expectations for their life and their expectations for each other and how those come into conflict with each other. There's so much about this play we could keep talking about. Fortunately, we don't have to stop talking about the play at this point. As Jacob mentioned at the start of the podcast, we uh, love getting to have more conversations about the podcast that we do with all of you out there in podcast land. We have a Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We would love to keep talking about this play with you, and we'd love to keep cultivating a space where you all can talk to each other about these plays with each other. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please recommend the podcast to your family, your friends, anybody that likes theater, scripts, stories, send them our way. They can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube. We're everywhere. And you can also like us on Facebook and you'll find the new episode linked every Monday so you can just click and play from there. Until next week, I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. <laughs>